coming up on Art Palace. This like constant through line in our work is we want this eerie strangeness, something that's a little off, something that's not quite right, something that's a little dark. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool people are Katie Parker and Guy Michael Davis from Future Retrieval. We recorded this conversation for a video that we made, but had to cut about half of the content for time. This extended cut will let you hear more details and insights into their process. If you want to check out that video, visit cincinnatiartmuseum.org slash behind the scenes. And it's also linked from the Future Retrieval exhibition page. Hi, I'm Katie Parker. Hi, I'm Guy Michael Davis. And we're Future Retrieval. And we're here to talk about our exhibition, Close Parallel, at the Cincinnati Art Museum. I'm originally from Bartlesville, Oklahoma. It's in what they call green country in northeastern Oklahoma. And I grew up in uh, Plano, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, Texas. We met at the Kansas City Art Institute in 1999. Um, Our freshman year, uh, we both were in foundations and um, hung out together, and then both ended up being ceramic majors uh, from 2000 to 2003. What brought you to Cincinnati? Well, after kind of meandering all over the place, ultimately it was for work. Yeah. Right? Um, But we'd kind of been following each other for different opportunities. We lived up in uh, Massachusetts for a little while. We'd gone to graduate school at um, Ohio State University at different times, but we'd kind of been just bouncing around and, and like I said, um, kind of just tag teaming on uh, each other's um, opportunities. And then um, a position opened up at the University of Cincinnati and we ended up moving down there. How did you decide to start making art together? Was there like a particular project or anything that where that started? When... Uh, Guy was in grad school. Um, I shared a studio with one of my uh, professors from the Ohio State University, Rebecca Harvey. And when we were working in the shared studio, the two of us just started um, coming up with ideas together and making art together. And then um, her husband, Stephen Thurston, and then uh, Guy were both uh, at Ohio State University um, in Guy was Stephen and Rebecca's student at the time, and we talked about maybe the four of us could um, work together, come up with some ideas together, and apply for some grants to figure out some kind of larger projects that utilized all our skills. So the main idea was just the four of us with very similar interests, but very different skills. How could we come together and make something that was larger than what we could do individually? Um, And we did that for about a year and a half. And then when we moved to Cincinnati, Um, That was sort of the beginning of the end, and the two of us split into two groups of two, and ever since then, we've been working together as Future Retrieval. Um, And we just realized it was so much easier to make work as a duo. We just got further faster. Um, At my core, I'm I'm much of a a formalist, and and I'm very sensitive to line and shape and all these things, but but with a a bent towards minimalism, and so I've have a tendency to mass produce like a lot of blank 
very simple kind of clean things. And I, you know, I always say Katie might be like a maximalist or something like that. And so I was amassing all of these kind of very sterile looking things. And Katie's on her side, she's encrusting and texturing and layering all of this stuff. And, and, uh, at one point it was just, yeah, I was handing like, something off. I was looking for things that were blank to decorate. And then you were making only blank things in your studio. And it just seemed like if I could just have one, I know I could make it better. And that's kind of how uh, it started. Are there any other like differences in your working style that complement uh, each other? I feel like the way uh, you work is very like formulaic and organized mm. and prepared and measured and nothing's ever done without doing some kind of trial. And then the way I work is really like intuitive. Right. I don't want to measure. If I try to measure, I'm usually wrong. I just want to start it and I'll sink, you know, hundreds of hours into something without testing it first, just because I want to see if it actually yeah. works. And so there's this like full steam ahead, let's plan a plan. And I think those things really complement each other yeah. more and more. Because, you know, the way I work, maybe nothing would ever get done. Yeah. Or it would take a long time, you know, and then Katie will jump right in. And the first one is the work often. So, uh, yeah, that's an, it's a balance, yeah. really. But with the show at uh, Cam, like really trying to balance those two ways of working, um, knowing this was coming up and knowing the lead time we had. Um, on one end, we really had to slow down, look at what we were using, figure out how that's going to work, make a series of mock-ups. Um, and do a lot of tests in the studio. And on the other hand, we just kind of needed to like get started. So I think that's always something we're trying to like talk about in the studio. And then just in terms of what we each do, I think it really does fall back into how we started where guy is really the form maker. Like you focus on form, you develop a lot of the forms and make molds for the forms. And then on the other hand, I do a lot of the, decoration and kind of the like the extras um the kind of like slower more tedious uh pattern driven pieces and it, that could even be distilled down into like 2d and 3d um, yeah i guess so in a way yeah right but it's 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 muddy you know um and also katie likes to sit and work and i like to stand and work you know those are like <laughs> and that that kind of also speaks about like the type of you know what we're into so I don't think we talked about where the name Future Retrieval comes from, did we? No. No. So the name Future Retrieval. Well, yeah. First, we had like a brand whenever we had our collective. It was like a design collective. And so we did have like a, it was a brand yeah, kind of that we were moniker. developing. And then whenever we kind of split off, we still felt like we were in this more business vein or something. And that we needed, if we were working as a team, we needed some kind of a label, I guess. Yeah, um, or like a team name. Yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. Something <laughs> that kind of brings everything together. Um, but ultimately, we were looking at, uh, it goes multiple ways, but it started because we were looking at our contracts to our student loan forms. And it, this word kept coming up for future retrieval, for future retrieval, for future retrieval. And we, we thought it was kind of comical, actually, because it was something that we didn't want back. We wanted to get rid of this thing. And, uh, but it was also so the, the tongue twister of it, it was seemed just kind of like a, a strange thing. Right. And we thought, how do, maybe how do we make work that's good enough that in the future we'd want to get it back in some way, mm -hmm. something that we're putting out in the world that 
we'd want to like yeah. pull it back into our yeah. so lives. It, it, it made sense like technically with the with the loan, or it didn't make sense with that. <laughs> um, but it, we automatically connected with it with the fact that we are, you know, we love libraries. We love digging into old things. We love bringing things to the surface and making new of it, or, or re-envisioning it, or refreshing it, or or, or um, you know, re-giving this these things new life wanted to know sort of um, about your perspectives on art from the past and why you seem to be drawn to like recasting and repurposing older styles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we're looking at the past because there's just such a rich wealth of information there. Um, A lot of times as we're um, maybe I could maybe we could each speak from each end, but I was I'm so interested in like pattern and ornament. And when I'm looking for that, the first place I go is I'm looking back at the past. I'm looking at old wallpaper patterns. I'm looking at uh, decorative patterns that were used on ceramic plates and dishes and vases. And I'm looking across like history to see how that was done and what changes and what colors are used, what shapes are used, how those like move and morph depending on the form or the place or the time. And, um, when I look, if I was starting with kind of what's happening, um, in a contemporary landscape, there's plenty out there, but all of that's informed by what's happened before. So I just kind of naturally want to go backwards. Um, I think also growing up, um, I grew up in a really suburban town where I never really saw old things. And it wasn't until I went to art school and actually got a job at architectural salvage, where I was surrounded by like old pieces and repaired them that I really got interested in looking at that and kind of looking for those clues around me. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that kind of gets me charged up about old stuff like this is that it's um, so alien, but validated at the same time. So there's these things that we can't possibly understand. All right. They were made by us humans. All right. It's like human evolutionary design. Um, for a time, for a place, for um, a political, psychological mindset that we will never, you know, have anything to do with. We can't possibly fathom uh, the the feelings that went into these things and surround them. And then the fact that somehow these objects that were made in the past have kind of um, risen to the surface and been preserved in these institutions and and um, deconcat decontextualized and then we kind of we give them this value and so i think all of that kind of there's a mystery to it for me that helps me want to kind of dig into it and be a part of that that trajectory of of making i i think i don't know it's similar to you know why are we fascinated with things that are like deep under the sea that we don't know about but we know it's there and we know that they've been it's been there forever you know and it has this like inherent value to it and I think it's just these kind of things that I want to be a part of. Well, and also like both being trained as potters, we would go to the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City and look at old pots. Yeah, yeah. And that's how we learned what to make. Yeah. Uh, I would go to the Nelson every day and look at the same pieces. And I knew that if I, if I could, as I was young and developing these skills, um, if I could recreate one of these objects, then that these objects that have already like withstood the test of time have been validated within our culture and the institution as like the most valuable things that represent, you know, human making. 
um, if I can achieve that caliber of skill, then I've gotten somewhere. And so that was my, that was the standard that we held was like, okay, if we can get to that level of the quality of these things that have been validated, then we're part of that. And that, and that's where we were told to look. It was never like go to Denny's and figure out why they're giving you this mug and why they give yeah. everyone the same mug yeah. and why that works for yeah. the Denny's restaurant chain. It was like, go to the art museum yeah. and see what's there and come back with some ideas. Yeah. And Denny's came later, I think. And we figured that out too. <laughs> I'm just thinking of, of your relationship with like 19th century furniture and things where nature is sort of like decorating every surface and, and things like that. I guess I, I'm just kind of curious if that is an influence. I mean, it's something I'm reading into the work, I guess, when I look at it. Um, is that a direct influence for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, something I'm like, will forever be fascinated by is wallpaper. And so that was a way to bring the outside in, in a way to um, very quickly and somewhat cheaply elevate your surroundings. So, um, and then, you know, based on what kind of wallpaper you have or what kind of furniture you have and thinking about architects, you know, like Frank Lloyd Wright building these homes where everything's, um, everything's considered from the beginning, the furniture, the ceiling height, the wall, the windows to kind of make this um, idealized living space. And I think because we were in New Bedford, um, because we've lived in these like older cities that have these rich histories, we're always looking at um, the American wing of art museums and antiquing is huge. We love going antiquing. Um, that's really taken a hit during the pandemic. Um, but this way to kind of look at like what's around us, what what did the people who lived in this region collect? What's available? Um, as someone who, or as people who want to pull from collections and archives, a lot of that is antiquing. You know, what's here? What what do we have access to? What can we bring into our studio? I'm trying to think about like the human desire to bring the outdoors indoors, you know? Yeah. Like when did that start? When did it become like such a, a driven thing connected to the decorative arts? And I was actually just looking at, uh, uh, Augustus the Strong's uh, hunting palace, Moritzburg. And that was also, you know, a place that was where he was really trying to bring the outdoors in and encrust the inside with natural things like his sleeping quarters was completely covered with peacock feathers. Um, but there was definitely a boost, you know, post-industrialization. Um, and maybe we're kind of in the show where, where we have a little bit of that going on with the, the, cha the mushroom chamber, thinking about aquaria, and the containment of the natural world on the inside. And I, and I don't have any answers for that, but you know, there's a thirst to be part of the world that we come from. And it seems like our nature, our human nature, because of, of our consciousness and our abilities to communicate and everything that we're, we're constantly separating ourselves. I was kind of curious about your ideas about edited nature. Um, if that's a way to describe it, there was a screen um, or something that was sort of a symmetrical floral pattern. Um, mm. And it just like struck me as like odd because it's not something you would typically see in that way where like, but to see it sort of divided um, so symmetrically felt very like eerie almost. There was like an, almost an eeriness. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, that's definitely, I mean, part of it. Yeah. You know, um, where I, I think like, well, I was just thinking like the, this like constant through line in our work is we want this, eerie strangeness something that's a little off something that's not quite right something that's a little dark um 
when we started looking at just even like early mycin figurines, you know, they're, they're kind of grotesque. They have, um, they kind of have like this little dash of like evil in them in terms of the way that they're sculpted, um, the way that they mimic reality, but they're not quite real. Um, they're not like, they're not soft and cute in any way. Um, so with the screen and with the way that we kind of, um, control ornament and move that around the page, I think we want something that's, yeah, just kind of uncanny. So we always are um, mirroring or doubling or making things in multiples to kind of like push that forward. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that's coming from interests in um, films and literature that have that, that little thing you can't quite put your finger on, but just um, makes it a little off. But I also think the mirroring kind of pulls you in a little bit and gives you a focal point of where to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know the the core of the the eeriness of the work that we we hope exists somehow. Um, but you know, there's two of us, so we make like two two different things all the time. It seems like we're we're always negotiating this duality, um, and you know, we are inspired by films like you know things by uh, Stanley Kubrick who used mirroring and and uh, and doubles to kind of create this strange atmosphere and Peter Greenaway um it's it's a it's reoccurring yeah we had twins so we just really uh committed to that theme <laughs> when i was looking at the images i there was the the piece that uh i think it's like hinged Right, like a, a sort of a hinged environment uh, that. Oh, the the kind of like period, the like dual. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's. Yeah, I saw that and I was like, oh, it's like two thousand one. Yeah, like, that's what totally. It is. That's, that's what it is. Sort of like little sculptural inset pieces. It was like, oh, this feels very much like the end of two thousand one. Something about the it was like lit from below. Oh, that's exactly what we we're trying to do. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. And it is the monolith. It's the monolith that opens up into the, these scenes from the movie basically yeah. Yeah. yeah totally i feel like tropical birds are a recurring motif in your work <laughs> and i'm just kind of curious where that comes from hmm well i guess the birds started with your scans right or did it start before i'm trying to think of like really where that comes from yeah. you know I, personally i grew up with a parrot but um <laughs> i don't I don't, well, I mean, unconsciously that stuff always like rises to the surface. Right. But, um, I think ultimately, cause we had this fellowship at the Smithsonian and, um, I had access to 3d scanners and I was, I was going through their, um, collections of taxidermic forms, which there isn't a lot of, and really it was kind of, um, a process thing and an economy thing that the tool that I had happened to capture the texture of bird feathers very, very well. And so I decided to explore that. And so um, that just kind of led me down a path of, of selecting um, uh, aviary. I think um, a lot of the imagery that's in the show and that we've been using for quite a few years is from uh, Zubair's French landscape uh, wallpaper, scenic, titled El Dorado. And it's sort of this like view of four continents, but in the most idealized version. So there's these like giant palm trees and the skies, this beautiful fade and bouquets of flowers on like steps covered in vines. And there's these like birds that kind of fly through the yeah. scene. And I, I think it's just this kind of like 
uplifting, idealized, uh, like beautiful, magical world yeah. that. Thanks. Thanks for yeah. adding that um, <laughs> because there, no, that's true because like we could have selected any bird. Right. And so, um, I think the parrot in particular brings a level of exoticism and with exoticism is this also this unknown that I was kind of talking about earlier about things from the past, having, you know, having this, this, uh, these questionable things that we can't possibly understand. But then we have the vulture. We have the vulture. Which is like, to me, just like, feels like very, like, spot on for COVID times. Just this like, doom and gloom bird that's out to like, ruin the party and is like, looking for like, things that are already going wrong. I don't know, do you... Oh yeah, for too sure. Much? Okay. No, I, you know the the vulture is like kind of symbolizes death and rebirth in a way. It's a transformative animal, and um, in the exhibition, there's a lot of kind of clues towards transformation. Do do particular animals stand in for ideas for you, kind of like a fable? Mm-hmm. Do, does yeah, anything I for think. You? Well, yeah. I mean, for one, the the on one hand, the animal is a stand in for the human. And I've never, we've never brought ourselves to actual, well, maybe a little bit working with the human figure, but I think because we're animals, it's just becomes like this vehicle for, um, working with life in a way. On, um, on a piece that's not in the show, um, uh, giant kind of landscape diorama, we were looking at, uh, Thomas Cole's course of empire paintings and sort of, uh, this kind of like beginning bucolic scene and then kind of like the end where everything falls apart. And we were thinking what happens when maybe this whole experiment doesn't work out and it's just the animals left, you know, how do they, how do they live amongst our ruins and how do they kind of navigate this world that we've uh, come in and changed and then have left back in their hands, the fireplace at cam, we were kind of thinking about a little bit about, Rookwood being located in over the Rhine and what happens if that kind of grand experiment of transforming a whole section of town doesn't play out and um, what happens to those animals that are left. So those are kind of stand-ins that was coming from a 15th century Indian tapestry that again, it was this like mirrored, beautiful animal scene. So we changed a lot of the animals out. There were these like, um, like very fancy birds. And so we changed those to pigeons and we put in like, pit bulls and you know we were kind of like so the animals are kind of like an inside joke a little bit there's the dogs of the factory owners of the artists involved in the project mm-hmm. they are stand-ins but not directly yeah um also another thing that keeps us going about the animal form um is our kind of pursuit towards perfection and perfect form and you know that couldn't be more evident than in evolution and so you know we see these things as like highly refined, uh, perfectly designed, um, things, right. That function quite well. And so, and, and through their ability to live and function and, you know, live in particular biomes and be, um, have developed and evolved in these specific, um, environments, um, they've taken specific shapes as well. And these shapes are, are, they're perfect, you know? And so that's kind of just like, us looking towards uh, perfection. Yeah, and a lot of this is coming from taxidermic specimens. So then those are also perfectly crafted to mimic reality. So then we're trying to mimic that. 
kind of going a little bit backwards and, and just thinking about the historical influences where we started, I'm kind of curious how that has influenced the small, like special feature you've curated in the museum also, the for now or future retrieval and, and how you selected those objects and, and how those, if any of those objects or, or sort of their time period, how those things have influenced your work. Some of the stuff is stuff we've looked at for a very long time, and some of it was completely new and, and kind of gave us some inspiration to move forward with. Um, you know, a lot of those things are things that we've respected and held in like really high esteem anyway, and we, we, were, we feel like very lucky to be in the vicinity of them and to be able to make decisions with them and, and pair certain things together to... Um, level the playing field for some and, and elevate others. And, um, I was going to say it's part of this started, um, when we had first moved to town, I had emailed Amy and asked, could I bring my students down into the collection to look kind of, uh, through the Cincinnati art museum's collection of ceramics. And she said, sure, come on down. Um, so, myself and a group of my students had gone down and looked through the ceramics collection. So I think from the beginning, we kind of knew what the art museum had and what was available. And that's always been in the back of our minds. Like I knew there was a Ken Price. I knew there was a Betty Woodman. I knew there, you know, there were like these different things. And then we kind of got this sense of what, what was available. And so I think it's always been percolating. And then when we were able to go actually select things, it was kind of this like magical, like, how would you see fit to organize this? And that felt like, oh, actually, <laughs> it would be really cool to pair this with this and that with that. And has anyone ever seen this? And oh my gosh, I can't believe the art museum has that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just gonna, off the top of my head, there's some things that like are direct, like right before the, um, we became so involved with the Cincinnati Art Museum collection, uh, we were making apothecary jars, and so the collection had an apothecary jar, an original Italian one, I believe. Um, so we were like, oh, we want to show that because we've already kind of dug into that a little bit. There's the Jeffrey Mann piece about the the conversation and where um, this was happening, you know, in the um, early, two, you know, 2008, 2006 or something like this, whenever um, kind of technologies were just starting to make their way into like the craft world. And that's about the same time that we started using uh, digitization in our work. And I remember like looking at that piece, it came, it came to the surface and, and really kind of having that as a source of inspiration. Um, there are a couple small Wedgwood pieces that are very angular and those were kind of shapes that we'd been working with before, but not even knowing that they were just kind of similarities. And then there were some things that we'd never, well, the Ken Price and the, Nishida June. Nishida June. We'd seen uh, the June piece in uh, Boston uh, out of nowhere. We never knew about the work and we were so moved by it. And the, the, the transformation and the violence and, and everything that's involved in that work and um, really got us going. And then to see that there was one at the Cincinnati Art Museum and then um, to you know, be able to pair that next to Ken Price. And that was kind of two different ways we felt of getting to a very similar subject for Kins was much controlled, but it was, you know, this amorphic, biomorphic thing that was kind of, it, it speaks about movement and fluidity and all this stuff. And Nishida's work um, was um, 
was about fluidity and transformation. And that, that's how the work happened through the, the moltenness and the melting and the alchemy of it. And so um, that's just kind of some samples of like how we were kind of approaching this. Can you think of anything? I think like the Overbeck pieces. The little rug and yeah, we've George never seen Martha it. Washington. Yeah. yeah, there are just some little like sweet gems down in the collection that we really wanted to like bring out and highlight. And I guess because this exhibition is taking place during the National Council for the Ceramic Arts Conference, we were thinking as ceramic artists, if we came into a ceramic show at a museum, what would we want to see? And so we really wanted to like fill the space with kind of a diverse group of objects that showcased um, not only like ceramic history and our interests, but like what a museum actually collects and what what's possible and what is down um, in a museum's archives that maybe doesn't quite fit or maybe will never fit with specific shows and exhibitions. I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about, about close parallel okay. about the exhibition um, and so just to kind of start, what does the title close parallel mean to you? What is close parallel? <laughs> yeah. What is close parallel to us? And so I think it's about, part of it is about us running kind of concurrently to these objects that already have these, uh, sometimes dicey histories or, um, uh, uh, you know, we have these stories for these things. And then they kind of ended up at, the, at an institution. And so maybe for instance is, when did we go to Germany? 2008. 2008. We went and worked at the Dresden Porcelain Factory. And that's really whenever, whenever things started going as far as us collaborating, because we were sharing shapes um, that were the, the factory's forms. And we, we got these molds and we were, we were um, trading them around and making things out of it. So the work wasn't ours. And those forms actually came from uh, Mycen. Um, so they were copies of original Mycen forms. And so we always had this high respect for like Mycen porcelain because it seemed like the it was the, 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 the grandest European porcelain and the first European porcelain. So when we were working in Germany, we were there for the 300th anniversary jubilee of the discovery of porcelain in Europe. And so now to fast forward to being in the collections of Cincinnati Art Museum, so yeah. we saw this uh, uh, Mycen Candler terrine in the CAMS collection. We knew we wanted to work with it. And it had this kind of cool history of, as written in one book, as, as potentially given by Saxony to the Queen of Naples. I'm not too sure about that uh, because if we looked at the terrine, it has this crack in the bottom. And I wasn't sure if, um, you know, if Saxony would actually be giving away as a gift to another uh, country, um, a defective piece. And then so <clears throat> we took a 3D scan or, or a photogrammetric scan of the, of the terrine and then decided to start reproducing it. And every one we made had this crack in the bottom of it in the exact same place. So essentially we discovered this like 300 year old fl design flaw. And so, I mean, I think that's just like an example of how we're, we've dug into these objects and we're running parallel to this thing that already happened. So we did a pretty kind of low tech, high tech um, processing of that. So we just took a series of photographs. I don't know, maybe like 15. It was totally, you know, like I said, as easy as possible. And because of the reflective surface of the glaze, that actually shows up in the texture of the, the digital processing from photograph to 3D object. And so it's that those refractions of light are actually being 
um, translated or transformed into a uh, surface or object. And so it's taken this slick sheen reflective thing and then, and, and texturized it. And that was, a, you know, that's us losing control because we were trying to like, actually like make a 3d scan of this thing to a degree. And then we, it got us to something that we would have never had control of or never made the decision to, to do that. And then we embraced that and, and kind of ran with it. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when we're, when we're copying an object or being inspired by an object, we don't need to make that object because that object's right. there. It's right. going to be in the other show. You can go around the corner and see that too. Yeah. So we don't want the exact same thing, but to be able to use that and make something that's while it yeah. is literally the thing, it's so far removed yeah. from it. And that's, it makes you look at the yeah. original completely differently. Right. And that's also, you know, how we're, we're taking it to another level or another place. And that's that, that parallel that we have the original here and we have this quasi replica that's actually nothing it's barely a resemblance of the previous one but it's also the same right it had those flaws <laughs> that the original one had and so there's this we're not together we're like here right and we're running yeah. alongside of it yeah and these mistakes things that we're starting to embrace uh, you know that's something that we're embracing more and more in the world that we're living in now right is that uh, resources are dwindling up access to things are you know have dwindled um, and you kind of, sometimes you get what you get and you just kind of have to accept it and be as creative as possible with it. I was thinking like, no matter how it much feels like we're we part can, of this, like, we're part of yeah. the terrain now. We're part of the history of the terrain now in a way in our minds. Yeah. And we can interject as much as we want into the terrain, onto the terrain, changing literally the entire makeup of the terrain, but it still goes back to the way it was originally designed in the very beginning in this plaster model. And we can't like outrun the fact that that wasn't never going to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I think maybe it's a lot of questions too. Like, you know, what happens when we put our object on this object, you know, and then, then what is authorship then and who owns what? And, you know, and it, it gets really muddy a little bit, you know, but that's the way we think we feel like we're, we're running parallel to these things that we're part of them. I noticed your, you know, your, your dog walking around and I noticed in the uh, photos, there's like in the process shots, there's like a very tiny puppy. Um, and then now a very grown up looking dog. So how long have you been working on this? Yeah, that weaving, that first weaving was 20. So I guess we've had the dog for three years. So that first weaving was started like exactly three years ago. I think whenever Amy first approached us about the show, the idea was that maybe it would be more of a survey of our work and that we could use old pieces or even borrow things that were made it up to other collections and things like that. And we kind of jumped in and said, well, could we just like make pretty much all new stuff for the show and dig into the collection and see what's available there and make and respond to the, the Cincinnati Art Museum collection and maybe show some things or respond to some things that haven't seen light of you know the ground level in quite some time <laughs> and so yeah there's a couple of things that were made prior to um, us knowing that we were going to be having this show yeah or the uh, the shag rugs in the show are so slow um so that first one probably took i don't know like eight months or so and then the second one took six months and now mm -hmm. i feel like i'm really making headway on a new yeah. one um but some of the stuff i think the way we work is this, um, 
like a long game <laughs> um, where we see like where we want to be at the end and we're just kind of slowly inching our way there. But with each experience or each exhibition um, or every time we're able to have access to more like information, data, collections, images, we just kind of like slowly build on this thing that just keeps rolling forward. So a lot of work just feels like rather than a show ends and we stop and then completely retool to start again, we just keep going. And as each thing builds on itself, it becomes part of this larger narrative that is forward looking, but it also looks back to where we started as a collective. So we're always pulling from like these earliest influences, that trip to Dresden and working in the porcelain factory to now like these pieces that we are using from the art museum, I think will influence probably the next two shows worth of work. Um, like the more information we gain, the more we want to put that forward. And the show always feels like the end of an idea, but also just the beginning of the next idea. And that one's going to be the thing. In the new exhibition, what's a piece that does kind of harken back to that sort of work in the porcelain factory? I mean, definitely high rise Frago with the Mycenaean Cause that's literally the museum saying, yes, you can reference and use this Mycen piece that you love. Um, <clears throat> but I mean, also the vulture. Yeah. I think the, the, the complexity of the ceramic pieces are definitely influenced by the experience of working in, in Dresden. The, I think that's where we saw that porcelain could be anything and it can and it, it can be a very detailed and complex um, sculptural material, and so whenever we were, you know, we we did go into the collections of um, Mycen at the this Vinger, um, and we saw that you know um, molds may have only been used a few times before they were worn out beyond the quality that they were looking for, and that um, you know things weren't just like. The, the you know factories there were called manufactories and so they were kind of more about human production than machine production and so you have this certain level of detail um, that an artisan is putting into the work on in it, every individual piece and so I think it's just the the quality that we saw or that we experienced from working in Germany is is what kind of came to in the ceramic pieces. Yeah, because anyway. there's, you know, giant um, vase forms that are covered in these, like, small uh, porcelain flower balls. And then I think we're doing, and, you know, it's just women by hand pumping out these tiny little flowers and applying them one by one. And then in the um, on the mushroom pieces, we're doing the exact same thing, making that mushroom form in a press mold that we can pop those out and then hand form mushrooms one by one to kind of ornament, but also, yeah, showcase like that, what porcelain can do that the material, although it has so many limits, if you can work it right, it is limitless in what it can make every year, except the last two years, uh, we've been going to Jingdezhen, China and working in, um, what is the porcelain capital of the world. And it started with a research grant where we went uh, and made a body of work for a month. And then um, since then, we had been taking students every December and staying for a month, month and a half, two months um, to make work in this city. And then guys have been going in the summer to work with a like lacquer master um, to learn ceramic lacquer and repair. 
But um, when we go to this city, we're able to um, design forms and have those uh, modeled or lathed out of plaster. And then we cast those. And then because this whole city is set up for ceramic industry, you can go to glaze shops or glaze stores where there's, you know, thousands of glazes that you can buy um, in bottles and just take them right back to your studio. So when we go there, um, something we really like to experiment with is just um, glaze painting. And it's really, you know, that's very traditional in terms of ceramic arts is painting with glaze. Um, but being able to have any glaze of any texture that all works at the same temperature available so easily that we're not mixing and testing to then put them in these public kilns and have a turnaround in a day um, is really amazing. So a lot of those vases are layers and layers of ceramic glaze. And those pieces are fired multiple times to kind of get, I, I think that's like as close as we're getting to painting in our work. Studio ceramics probably started in America. And what studio ceramics is, is the ability for a single person to have complete control over all the material and processes in their studio. It's this like self-contained private ability to be an individual factory with artistic expression to a certain level, right? And so what going to China has um, enlightened us on is that we don't have to be in control of everything. So we can do a, a certain amount of outsourcing. We can save our bodies on a certain amount of process. We don't need to prove our skill in every facet of our making. And so what that does is it, it actually gives you a certain amount of freedom to be able to pick and choose and um, have more time to spend on certain things. And I think, you know, that opportunity to work a little bit more as a painter um, and not be so fixated on the, the time and process of the, of the making of the object. Yeah. And be more playful and mm -hmm. experimental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so like that glaze was available and that's probably not a glaze that we would have made in our studio. Um, but by having that access to that and the ease to it um, and being able to experiment with it then has, you know, freed us up now. So we're more accepting of things and, and, and we're working in different ways. Um, I, I noticed in one of the photos, there's, I, I believe uh, there's like an enormous kiln that uh, works are being rolled into. Is that correct? Yes. Oh, in China. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So every, or I was going to say every night, basically, or every afternoon, basically, unless it's like raining, um, the public kilns get fired and then they're fired all night long to a crazy high temperature. As soon as the kiln is done, the door is pulled open and it just, all the heat pours out. So then it can be open the next morning at around, I don't know, 600 degrees. Yeah. It's crazy hot. Um, so every morning, like when the kiln opens, it's just this kind of like everyone runs to see the, or if you have work in it, um, I don't think like regular people care, but you're like <laughs> running to see what's in the kiln. Um, and so as they open the kiln, you like, and with those big vases, you could see them and you're just either like, yes, it worked or like, okay, we got to retool and start yeah. again. So this place has this very old history going back to, um, well, I mean, it goes probably over 10,000 years of, of ceramic making. Um, but this was the imperial city for porcelain manufacturing. And so uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a factory town. And I think, you know, I don't know, 40% of the population now is probably of like a million and a half people is probably still 
associated with ceramics in some way, but it, it is being gentrified and, and, and stuff. So the old factory stuff is going away and the new museum stuff is coming in and the, the, you know, the, the people that were living and working in the factories are being pushed to different parts of town and so forth so, to keep up their work. But basically I think the government thinks that that age is over with, but <clears throat> the, the Jingdezhen that we we still know a little bit is essentially, um, a bunch of factories which are more like villages. And so there are people living there and working there and essentially everything is public. So there's some um, privatization of workshops under the umbrella of the factory. And so maybe you work um, in Lao Yatan, the tile factory, producing some tile stuff, but your workshop is your private workshop and things are being passed around between the specialties within Lao Yatan, the tile village or whatever. And so there's the person with the kiln and there's the person that's carving, you know, rolling out the tile and there's the person that's hand painting the tile and, and all these things are going on in these private little areas. And so what we can do is make some friends and, and, and go in and um, collaborate with these people with these special skills, these artisans. And so it's, it's a public environment. And so the kiln is working and it's public and everyone does this, the locals. And um, so you know where the public kiln is, you bring all your work to it. The kiln boss puts the work in, the next morning you come and take your work away. Um, and that's like how you negotiate these factory settings. And so the turnaround is very, very fast because you, in a sense it is a factory and there's things coming and going and it's a breathing like an organism, right? And there's a day and it's like it, it breathes in at night and exhales during the day or something <laughs> and it's constantly moving. And so you have this, um, this rhythm of the factory and it, and it allows you to produce a tremendous amount of work. Not that it's all good, but you get to like <laughs> spill through a lot of ideas yeah. without um, killing yourself, yeah. basically. <laughs> Something I noticed uh, also that I loved um, are the pieces that are just sort of these flat cutouts that are just kind of jammed into little balls of clay. Like they make me laugh. Like I, I, I think they're funny. Like when I saw it, I kind of laughed. Just like there's something funny about the the crudeness of the the lump and then the precision of the metal. Like that that it's like to me it's like a visual joke almost. Yeah, it is. The, yeah, in regards totally to the, right. <laughs> the aluminum cutout silhouettes jammed into the and the pieces of clay, um, it is kind of a joke. That's super like high tech stuff, you know, using a water jet cutter, cutting out aluminum, powder coating it, um, and then like the, how do we the, make the it stand up? <laughs> the simplest thing known to humans, you know, the wad of clay with the finger marks in it and just jammed in it. Um, so there is a little bit of a play there with low, high, low. Um, there's also, you know, something that we talk about a lot more is like economy of means. It just worked. We had clay. We had this thing. We had to make it stand up. You know, let's just do that, but then embrace that as a conceptual gesture. I noticed uh, a photo, uh, Mike, of you with like a large old book with flower illustrations. What was that? Oh, that's from the that uh, that's from the Lloyd Library. So we were. We were artists in residence at Deloitte in 2019. Uh, so we spent about three months there in the stacks, um, just taking turns. And then like Fridays, we'd go together um, and just, you know, leaning so heavily on the Lloyd staff to um, help us kind of unearth 
like some of the most beautiful floral uh, and botanical mycological illustrations we'd ever seen. And then how did those kind of work their way into to the so, objects? <clears throat> so from our experience at the Lloyd, we started working with the, that's where the apothecary jar kind of came into play, thinking about uh, medicinal and pharmacological uh, plants. Um, also the uh, aluminum silhouettes, those are directly taken from the page of um, a, a rare book and then uh, made into 3D. And so, <clears throat> I don't know, you can kind of think of it in terms of almost like a pop-up book that we're taking all these images that are flat, these plates, and then we're kind of bringing them into the into the world a little bit. Yeah, the patterning on the screen that mirrors, that's um, different pieces from the Lloyd that I've kind of mixed and matched to make that radiating pattern. And then the ovals with the sconces, that kind of, it's a long running floral scene. That was probably a combination of, I don't know, maybe 10 different uh, volumes from the Lloyd, all kind of mixed and matched together to make a wallpaper and then broken back up again to make, uh, to like mm -hmm. kind of separate that pattern out to make mm -hmm. a linear kind of yeah. composition. There are also some tile in the exhibition, yeah. um, which they are plates in China, they call or the tile factory that we work in, they actually call the tile plate. Um, but then also the page out of the book is a plate, right? Or the image. And so um, we've actually, we've made these kind of smaller kind of volumes or ceramic books um, also taken from our, our digitization of, of volumes from the Lloyd. Cool. Um, that kind of uh, brings me to another question, which is just like, which is a bad question because it's just so open, but I've no, I've just kind of noticed a, a lot of interaction between like object and image. And, um, I, I, you know, you're kind of hitting on that there, but also like thinking about the rug, uh, that's sort of a drawing of sculptural objects. Mm -hmm. So is that kind of, is that sort of where you're coming from with that? Is this like uh, this interaction between object and image, something you're thinking about? Yeah. We're trying to figure out object and image. Yeah. And maybe that's why it's like always kind of there is like, I, I don't think that we've resolved it. No. But we're trying to figure it out. And we want to put our objects in a, in a scene, in an environment, in some kind of home. And I think that's, that's part of this museum kind of period room connection is when you look at decorative arts objects, they're always contextualized in some kind of environment or space that makes them make sense when you see them kind of pulled away maybe in a different exhibition that's focusing on something else and they become like an auxiliary thing that uh supports a larger narrative that's one way to look but the best way to see them is in the way that they originally functioned to make it make sense so i think also thinking about our background as potters function has a lot to do with it these the vases the rugs the tables you know these things do have another life or an implied life as we're making them. Um, and then this is probably a super misquote, but um, Betty Woodman had said, uh, you know, a painting goes on the wall, a sculpture needs a home. So I think we're always thinking about, well, where do these, where do these belong? And if we're artists making ceramic objects, you know, is the mantle the only place that they live? And then once you fill your mantle, are you done? Or you move to Scottsdale and you have no mantle. So now what? And so we just want to figure out other places these objects can exist and kind of build the larger world in which we want them to be seen in. I noticed a, uh, just a few sketchbook shots 
um, also in your process photos. Does drawing play a part in in your work and in idea generation? Yeah. Yeah. Drawing. Everything starts with a drawing. We're, we're given a prompt. Yeah. Basically, or, or we, we give ourselves or we give ourselves a prompt, and then we get together and start doing sketches and start visualizing these things, and then we decide who wants to do what, and then we just start getting to work in the studio and that, you know, we're not always like have both of our hands on something all at the same time. Right. We just kind of make a decision and we trust each other and we trust each other's uh, quality of work, aesthetic uh, decisions, you know, all of that stuff. And then we can kind of branch out knowing what that original drawing looked like and then bring it back together, critique it, make more decisions and so forth. And, and that's kind of how the process uh, of us working together. Yeah, but goes. the draw I think the drawing because we're working in these installation um the 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 realm of installation or these these projects are getting larger than just an object that goes on a pedestal. We kind of need to nail it down. So once we have the drawing or lately we've even been doing a lot of Photoshop renderings and we see it then it's kind of like okay, that's the thing. Go do your job and we'll slowly bring it back together. Um, but it's kind of like a, a guidebook to where we want to be. Also, in regards to like us drawing and sketching and stuff, the Photoshop renderings um, that are very crudely done, that's the, probably the next step in drawing. So first is probably like traditional, you know, in a sketchbook or something like that. And then we might want to try to visualize what we did then in a space. And so then we kind of move to Photoshop. And those are just like quick things to help us like understand like, okay, now... It seems like this can happen. Yeah. Then yeah. the next step is like printing it out as a giant bond print, tacking it on the wall, and then holding something up in front of it and taking a photo with the phone. Being like, okay, yeah. yeah. And then keep going. Yeah. We've been doing drawings that we'll both draw to, like separately, but kind of combine them together and then have um, underglazed transfers made in China that then we can apply onto the pot and then basically make it almost like a coloring book yeah. for glaze. Yeah, that enables us to, if, if we make our drawings, then have a transfer made, and then we have these stacks of repeatable images, then that gives us some liberties to collage and um, compose um, and eliminating that labor of, of redrawing something every time. What do you think this exhibition says about where you are right now? Oh, um, that's a great question. Uh, so I think maybe I'll what start. What does the exhibition say about where, where we're we at are right, right now? now. Yeah. I, I think one, just in terms of um, feeling like extreme, like gratitude towards Amy for her like belief and faith in us um, to be able to, tackle the space, but then also to, um, trust us with, with the museum's collection, with her collection, um, with these objects that we've looked at for years. Um, every time we go to the museum in Cincinnati for us to be able to come in and use those to then elevate our ideas, to then produce things that again, are kind of larger than what we would be able to do with just the tools in our studio, make it feel like this is this kind of like, um, I don't know where everything's really like coming back together again in our, the time that we spent in Cincinnati and the time that we spent with this collection. Let us envision our work in the kind of context that the work we love is presented. 
the way that we've been working with um, installations and period rooms to be able to have the space and the resources to actually execute rooms or room-like scenarios at that scale. I think we're always playing around with museum-ness in our work, um, stands and tables and arrangements. Um, so to then to be able to work with the CAM team of fabricators, of um, the installers with the like plexiglass cases, with the right text, with the right floor stands, with the wall paint, it just feels like all of a sudden all these things that I think we tinker around with are really happening. And that's exciting. Yeah. Cause I'm thinking about what this, what this exhibi exhibition means, where does it actually, you know, how does it reflect on where we're at right now? And I think, you know, we're remote. So we're in Arizona, you know, that was a major push at a massive um, uh, point of our lives of change. And uh, we're still trying to reflect on it. Um, I don't know if it means like there's closure to um, a certain trajectory that we were on in our work. There might be, you know, there was uh, who knows where we're going to go from. We're farther from Europe and our, our work was very Euro Eurocentric. Um, and so I think we're uh, we're turning the page in a sense and um, excited to see what comes next. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have conversations about the art yourself. The museum is currently open, but please visit our website for the most up-to-date information about operating hours and also to reserve your advanced online registration, which is required to limit capacity. The museum has been selling out often on the weekends, so you'll definitely want to reserve your spot before making a trip. Current special exhibitions are Future Retrieval, Close Parallel, Frank Duvenek, American Master, and Anila Kwayum Aga, All the Flowers Are For Me. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and we also have an Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And as always, please rate and review us to help others find the show. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. <laughs>